I'm Rob Trusinski. This is Symposium, where we talk about the ideas at the basis of a free society. My guest today is Damon Linker. Uh, and I know you from your uh, from your column in the week, uh, but also you have a, a now a substack called Notes from the Middle Ground. So thanks very, very much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. I look forward to the conversation. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the current state of the right and of the political sort of environment in general. Uh, but I kind of, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, I've wanted to talk to you for a while is you're one of the few sort of, there's a specialty out there of center left people who talk about the right and who are able, there's like a very small number who are able to do it with a good deal of accuracy without really sort of lapsing into caricature. And that's partly because this is like an environment that you came out of. That's true. Uh, I, about 20 years ago, would have described myself as a conservative, um, although, it, you know, now it's time is ticking away. It's been about 19 years since I sort of publicly broke from the right. Uh, so, you know, it's been quite a while, but I retained a, a kind of um, a, a kind of deep understanding, I feel like, a kind of empathetic understanding from where many people on the right uh, are coming from. Uh, it makes a kind of intuitive sense. I get it. And I think that that informs some of my commentary or much of it on the right. Although I will admit that as the right uh, since Trump's uh, takeover of the Republican Party seven, eight years ago, um, the... <laughs> You know, you said I avoid caricature, but, you know, the right is sort of morphing into its own ever more grotesque caricature as it goes along. And that doesn't sound like what you'd expect to hear from someone who you said treats the right fairly. But I, I have to say that it is quite a quite a task sometimes to maintain um, that kind of equanimity and uh empathy for for what I'm seeing, uh, not for everyone, but uh, it, it, it's trying. Uh, the, the right is in a constant state of kind of self-revolutionizing radicalism. Uh, like it's constantly talking itself into being ever more indignant and angry and, and uh, justified in despising uh, more and more of our present in a way that makes engaging it increasingly challenging. Uh, and uh, some days I feel like uh, I will one day fail. <laughs> so I still well, you know, try. what you said about a caricature, it does strike me as, you know, that there is this sort of like this sense of you have a caricature view of us. So fine, we're just going to be that caricature. You think we're going to go out and say all all immigrants, all Mexican immigrants are rapists. Fine, we'll go out and say all Mexican immigrants are rapists. Uh, I think it's a process, I think, of a Shatnerization because there's this middle section of William Shatner's career, sort of post-Star Trek, where he, it seemed like, you know, like in the 90s, or it seems like every role he played was in some way a parody of William Shatner. <laughs> Like, yeah, I guess that would be like, what was the cop show he was on in the 80s? Uh, T.J. Hooker, yes. Yeah, T.J. Hooker. I, I watched that because I, I was a big, you know, original series Star Trek fan as a little kid. And so I was in 
in high school in the 80s and there was captain kirk wearing yeah. a cop outfit he's in <laughs> uniform he's on yeah, see, i think we're, we're both of, of the era that you know you came home after school and there and their start the original series was on on reruns uh yeah so like i saw those whatever it is 79 episodes like probably you know 17 times for each one <laughs> right, right, <laughs> i can right. recite the dialogue still in my but, 50s but there is that process that i think some people go through of sort of they 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 become sort of a caricature of themselves they become an exaggerated version of themselves and it's almost like the 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 the, the trump right has sort of embraced that and just gone with it yeah, and that's true. And I think it's distressing when a lot of what uh, the, the left and center left are accusing the right of being are fascists. And then if they decide they're going to prove they really are that just for the sake of, you know, triggering the libs, then uh, that's that's pretty uh, ominous and dangerous. And we see some of that. I do think that it's important to um, and I, I try to do this in my own writing to kind of think in on multiple tracks here because there's there is Donald Trump, the phenomenon, and then the the kind of rank and file tens of millions of Republican voters who who love him and want him to be president. And there's a whole dynamic involved there about about why and like what it is that appeals to them and. Therefore, like the rest of the Republican Party who don't like Trump so much, but yet can't say that in public, are constantly thinking through like, well, well, how can we tap into that without Trump? So you get, you know, Ron DeSantis trying to do his version of it, Vivek Ramaswamy doing his version of it and so forth. But then there's another level that that engages me a lot as uh, someone with PhD who studied political philosophy and kind of highbrow uh, political thinking uh, is, is the allure among right-wing intellectuals for ever more extreme forms of anti-liberal uh, thought and falling into habits that cannot help but remind one of the Weimar period where the National Socialists were picking up support and there was a kind of hunger in high culture at that moment for some savior to come along and wipe away all the decadence and corruption of the moment. And that prepared the way for Hitler's rise. Now, I'm not making any simple-minded equation between Trump and Hitler or, or whoever might succeed Trump as the uh, tribune for people on the right. But there is something uh, uh, ominously um, sinister about about this second track that really bothers me. And it isn't really about Trump. Many of those people will admit that, oh, Trump's a moron. He doesn't know what he's saying. He's inconsistent. Uh, he's not, he's not the, the leader we want. But there, there's a kind of open-ended craving or hunger for some anti-liberal savior to swoop in and kind of allow America to kind of make a clean break with everything up till now and kind of start fresh from very far right-wing premises. And that, that uh, I find probably more worrisome in a way, even than Trump himself, because it, that has more to do with like the cultural future. Uh, you know, Trump is, is, 
getting up there. He's not going to be around forever. And the question is, when he's gone, when he's off the scene, will will the Republican Party revert to something a little more uh, humane and mainstream, or is it going to go even further out uh, into the extremes? Well, that's why I want to talk about that. You know, I think we're both from sort of the fusionist era. You know, that that this is the late twentieth century standard uh, approach to conservatism is that you had the religious right, uh, and you had the uh, the the Cold War hawks, and the the, the famous three legs of the stool, sort of, where the 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 religious right, the uh, religious religious traditionalists, the Cold War hawks, and then you had the the free marketers who were not as committed to the religion part, but they were anti-communist. So, you know, anti-communism was sort of the glue that bound them all together. Uh, and so this is called fusionism. We're going to have this, you know, fusion of all these three things that or at least they were all going to be able to work together. And you know, this is a peculiarity of uh, American politics in a way, in that, you know, we have, because of the system we have, where, you know, it tends to not encourage the existence of small splinter parties. You know, if it, you have, if we were a European parliamentary democracy, we'd have like, you know, six or eight small parties and, and, and they would form temporarily coalitions, governing coalitions that would fall apart and come back together in different combinations. And each would have its defined ideology. And instead what happens is those ideological coalitions become sort of oddly tend to become oddly permanent and 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 cling together in a more or less fractious uh, uh um cooperation within a within one large political party and what i'm seeing is that we have an unusually fractious moment there where uh and, and we talk about anti-liberalism so liberalism in the political philosopher sense liberalism in sort of the classical liberal sense or the or the you know basically meaning advocacy of a free society was something that was in the heart of conservatism, you know, that that as much as they called themselves conservatives and talked about how much they hated liberals, there was, I mean, you know, from the Reagan era, a huge element of liberalism in, in that sense. So I guess your your background is from coming out of first things and out of, out of the, the more religious end of the right. So I guess my question is, is what's going on today more of a break with what was happening back then, or is it a continuation of certain trends uh, that have sort of gone off the, off off in a different direction than people expected back then. Well, you know, really good question. Uh, well, well stated. I mean, I spend a lot of time writing, uh, and actually now I'm I'm actually teaching at at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, and uh, I in my classes there, I I deal with these questions, and I have to say that. You know, it's hard to to grasp what's going on right in front of your face in real time. So it's taken a long time for me to kind of get enough data by observing what's happening to come to some settled view of it. But my view at the moment is that um, I totally agree with the three-legged stool way of thinking about the American uh, central right, the Republican Party. Um, but there is one element that actually uh, makes it more like a four-legged stool, uh, which of course is you know, a more solid stool to sit on if there are four legs rather than three. Um, and that is kind of George Wallace-style populism. Um, which which overlaps with with at least well actually with all three of those other stools. It's a kind of intensification 
and much more culturally based version of a kind of, you put it in terms of free market, I would say like economic libertarian kind of suspicion of government belief that if government gets out of the way, the, the country will thrive based entirely on kind of the private sector doing its thing without, with a minimum of, of oversight and regulation. Um, but basically, but it also, there is a, a large strand of kind of religious traditionalism in George Wallace style populism, as well as a real, yeah, during the Cold War, very intense paranoia about communism, not just from the Soviet Union, but like domestically infiltrating the government you know, the Birchers talking about Eisenhower being a communist and, and, you know, bureaucrats are just communists. And you hear that today and talk about de deconstructing the administrative state is kind of the update of that. So I think the way I've come to look at it is that when Reagan won in 1980, there were there was an element of that kind of George Wallace style populism, which makes sense given the way political history unfolded in the 60s and 70s, where the, the Democrats coalition fractured over civil rights. And then Wallace runs for president in 1968 and does remarkably well, wins 13% of the national vote, wins five actual states, uh, gets double digits in many northern states. Um, and he's a kind of proto-Trumpian in a lot of ways, the way he talks, the inflammatory rhetoric, the kind of triggering the libs dynamic, all of it is there in Wallace. And Reagan had to win in 1980 against a sitting president. He had to kind of mobilize those voters for his own coalition, and he did. And then, and then they were joined by lots of Reagan Democrats in 84. And so from Reagan on, you have this faction of, you could call them Wallace-style populists, paleoconservatives would be another way to describe them. They go back to the old right pre-New Deal, the people who hated the New Deal, who, who despised it, who were who tended to be isolationist in foreign policy, didn't want to get involved in European wars again and opposed helping uh, Great Britain and its fight against Hitler until Pearl Harbor. Those people are in that faction too. And from Reagan until 20, 2016, for the most part, they were the junior partners in that coalition. They were sort of assumed to be there, assumed that they would show up to vote on election day, but pretty much had to be resigned to accepting the consensus choice of the rest of the party. But, but in Pat Buchanan's 1992 challenge to the first uh, George H.W. Bush, uh, that was surprisingly potent in New Hampshire, and then, and then again with Sarah Palin being named as McCain's running mate in 2008 and a kind of excitement about her. And then in the primaries of 2012, where you had all of these challenges to Romney to being the kind of establishment choice. We had Michelle Bachman and then Rick Perry and then Herman Cain and then Newt Gingrich and then Rick Santorum while Ron Paul's getting 10 to 15 percent all throughout. Only once you get to like mid-March does Romney really rise uh, to be the nominee. And then finally in 2016, you have Trump 
And all those voters who had been restive suddenly are like, that's the guy. That's who I actually want. And, and we're living now in a reality where those junior partners have seized control and now run the show. And so that speaks to your very valid point about what happens in a country where structurally there are all these, these incentives that ensure we're just going to have two large kind of lumbering parties of these ragtag coalitions of sub-factions. Um, and they do remain largely locked in for long periods of time, but they jostle for relative power within the coalition. And I think what we've lived through over the last decade is a kind of revolution within the Republican Party where this junior partner has seized control and we're living in that reality now. Well, you know, as, you're, as we're talking here, I, I, I wonder if maybe we've we have misconstrued or at least in the current era, we're misconstruing what the factions actually are. So if you're talking about like the economic libertarian faction of which I would consider myself a member, I'm a radical free marketer, but you know, I'm a radical free marketer because I'm reading philosophers and economists and, you know, coming at it in a, you know, from having certain ideas and, and certain um, sort of thought through positions on things as opposed to that sort of populist approach. And, and by the way, my observation in the recent years is that the more people move to populism, the less they care about free markets at all. And they want what they want is economic, the economic populism never tends to, there was a, a move about 12 years ago, there's a lot of speculation during the, the Tea Party era about libertarian populism. And I think what's one the thing I've seen over the last 12 years is that there's no such thing as libertarian populism. The more populist it becomes, the less libertarian it becomes, the more it becomes, well, we have to shut down trade to so our jobs don't go to China. And we have to you know uh, regulate the big tech companies because they're too woke. And it becomes less, more and more, you know, we have to use government power in the economy, but, but for people like me, to benefit people like me. But but I do think there's this, this differentiation, you talk about the populace as being the fourth leg. I'm wondering if that's actually, in a way, the real differentiation. I, I, I've always thought there, there's one, only one class, real class difference in America, and it's college educated versus non-college educated. And I see that in, 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 in you know, if you look at some of the poll numbers, for example, uh, Trump loses badly, very lopsidedly. If you look only general, as a general rule, he loses um, lopsidedly if you look only at college educated voters. And this is true across different demographics. And he does very well if you look at non-college educated voters. So there's this sort of to the extent that you intellectualize these issues and care about a cause or a principle or a theory you're less likely to be gravitate towards him because he has no consistent cause or theory to the extent to which you're making decisions on your gut and on the entertainment value or on 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 with with a less intellectual gloss to it you tend to grab be, be more amenable to that kind of populist appeal yeah, I think that's exactly right. And then, of course, you know, uh, people who study public opinion and voting patterns closely have noted for quite a while that that we appear to be uh, in an era where the single most explanatory value variable in how you vote is whether you went to college or not. So you can tell 
if you if you well, it's not so much going to college, but graduating. So if you graduated college by this point, you are very likely to be a Democrat. If you if you either didn't attend college or you did for a while and then dropped out and didn't complete it, you're very much more likely to be a Republican. And that difference, uh, you know, there are. There are critical and worrisome things you could think about any kind of um, cleavage between where how people vote for different parties. When it seemed like back when I was at First Things and when I left First Things almost 20 years ago, it, it appeared that kind of church attendance was the most important variable explaining this. That like if you went to church once a week or more, you were almost certainly a Republican. If you didn't, if you go to church less than once a week or almost never or never, you're a Democrat. And there is some truth to that, some salience to that variable. Then there's racial polarization, which has always been a big deal uh, where, where you know black Americans almost always something in the range of 90% vote for Democrats. Uh, white people always vote more for Republicans than Democrats. So like going way back through many uh, presidential cycles, it's typical for a, a Democratic president to receive 90% of the black vote and like 42% of the white vote. That's But it's also true that in recent years, the salience of racial polarization has been dropping, especially in 2020, where uh, Trump actually improved his showing a little bit with black voters and a, and a considerable amount, I think about 8% or 8 percentage points uh, among Hispanic voters. Um, and that leaves educational polarization as actually the single most important one. I mean, but that is that is that is troubling because when when you're dealing with education, um, there are all kinds of weird things wrapped up with. And I wrote about this a week or so ago on my Substack, and I brought in Plato on this, who you know dreamed of a society led by philosopher kings, and I think one of Plato's intentions in writing about that is this point about how being intelligent, being knowledgeable about the world, being wise about the ways of the world can be, and we should sort of want it to be, a kind of justification for why I deserve to rule. I should have political power because I'm smart, because I know how to organize this complicated society we live in. You should want me to be your leader because I know things and I'll, I'll, I'll use this this skill, this this possession of my brain to help us collectively. The problem, though, is people who aren't as well-educated don't like admitting that there are some people <laughs> who are more fit to rule, and they will tend, if forced by the circumstance, to, to actually say, the fact that I'm not educated means that I actually am more intelligent in a kind of worldly wise way. I have more common sense than you do. Who are you to think you're better than I am? And, and the Republicans, as this polarization by education has gotten more intense, have begun making appeals very much along these lines, like basically... You people are overeducated. You're experts with, you know, sneer quotes as if people who actually know things are like dangerous. 
Um, and no doubt experts make mistakes because we're all fallible. And I think we should all be kind of skeptics of a kind. But, you know, uh, when you have uh, electoral appeals that like denigrate people who actually have knowledge about the way the world works, we're sort of setting ourselves up for even worse leadership down the road. That's my fear. It's not that the experts don't get things wrong and should be reprimanded and, and improve and be replaced. All that could be true. But if we replace them with people who aren't experts at all, that's not going to lead to better results. It's going to lead to almost guaranteed worse results. Yeah. So one of the things you're talking about here is this this decrease in racial polarization. And there's a part of me that's saying, yay, finally, you know, this is something I've been longing for for years. I thought it was very unhealthy that we had this racial polarization in American politics. And it seems like it's 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 eroding like in the way we don't want it to erode. Uh, and, you know, it, it seems I have a sort of theory in this, which is it seems inconceivable. You know, if you're watching Donald Trump and you've been or you've been watching various things happening on the right, that you know every every week or so there's some right wing writer or or assistant to a governor who turns out to have been like a a, a rabid white nationalist, and you, know, and, and you get these things exposed. And you have to think, well, you know, how could how could somebody who's black possibly vote for this? But if you think of it in terms of these are people who do not follow the news very obsessively, they're not they're people who. Uh, you know, do not a lot of that sort of floats by them. They pay attention more casually. They see Donald Trump and he's entertaining and he's, you know, he's he's a guy out of professional wrestling, right? So he has that that sort of blue-collar common man appeal that often bypasses some of the issues you think people really ought to be concerned about. Um yeah, know. absolutely. Yeah. Did you want to go on or you no, no I, I wanted to go on something else, which is um so, so where I was going with that is that uh, I understand the sort of anti-elite ad attitude behind this. It, it's something actually goes, I mean, in, in, as you know, this this goes all the way back to, you know, Thomas Jefferson, right? Uh, that there's been this long tradition of sort of populism to some extent in American politics where, you know, the founding fathers would appeal to the the common sense of the, of the common man, the farmer out in his field. But at the same time, they would then elect, you know, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams and lawyers and and intellectuals and and uh, yeah, highbrow people. So there was a sense of you made the appeal, like you said, they were the junior partners. You made the appeal. You had to show the common man, the the blue collar people, that you you understood their issues and sympathized with them, while still also appealing to the 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 educated vote. And my, I guess, let me get your thought on this, which is. I think that the talking about this sort of class division. I, I think that the appeal of education, and I'm starting to see that the 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 good side of that, as you said, the Platonic approach of knowledge should be not in the hands of philosopher kings, but in the hands of people who are educated and knowledgeable. And I see it in terms of I, I was just thinking about this earlier that in a way, college education is a marker for sort of bourgeois virtues. That this idea that you know when you when you should try to uh, to be knowledgeable about the topics you're talking about, or at least to appear knowledgeable. You should try to be consistent in the things you say, or at least keep your lies straight, or, you know, appear consistent. That that there's, you know, knowledge, consistency, um, having a stable uh, personal life, you know, and and, and uh, uh, sort of being, you know, I think Mitt Romney is like your ultimate straight-laced sort of uh, boring kind of guy, that that's, those are the sort of bourgeois virtues that we've wanted out of politicians. And I think with the educational polarization, what you're sort of 
And I think this is why Trump's a symptom of that is what you're seeing is somebody who basically does not have those bourgeois virtues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, although I mean, let me complicate that a little yeah. bit because as I'm thinking that through, I mean, if you wanted to uh, generalize about the kind of the Trump voter, uh, like who who is a Trump voter? It, the Trump voter is not for the most part, like someone who lost their job in an assembly line 10 years ago and is struggling. Uh, Basically, an independent contractor (laughs) is a Trump voter, like someone who's actually making a pretty good living, but doing a job that does not require college skills or, or credentials. So you basically, you're sort of like a small business owner. You probably began as a subcontractor or working for, as, a, as a, a hand for another contractor. And then you set out on your own and you start your own contracting business. And think about how you, like, you need those bourgeois virtues to do that. You need to know some bookkeeping. You got you to gotta kind of figure out. You're paying above board and under the table and paying taxes and and dealing with local regulations on on the, uh, you know, the updates to the house that's your next project. Um, And that that's those are skills. Those are bourgeois skills, but they don't require like university level education. Um, Whereas what is it? There's a non-intellectualized aspect to it. Yeah, it's closer to the ground of just sort of like getting by at at, uh, at a level of, uh, you know, similar to the work itself, which involves using tools and knowing how to, you know, put up a roof and, and you know, fix plumbing and things like this. Very practical skills that you'll never learn at a university. And it turns out that these days, the people who do go to universities, especially selective and elite ones, have no idea how to fix plumbing and do carpentry and, and, and paint, paint a house well and so forth. So what do you learn? What do you, what is going to the university these days give you? It gives you a it gives you a kind of, well, I mean, to go back to the uh, kind of the sociology of the 1970s when this was first emerging, it, it turns you into a symbolic analyst. That's how they used to describe the like back when Daniel Bell and others were writing about the post-industrial society that was emerging. And that was a world where you your job is to manipulate symbols on what eventually became a computer screen. So words, numbers, charts, information being taken, repackaged, sent on to the next person, and then that information gets translated into real-world effects that can make money, and your, your job is to be a cog in, in this very often corporate, but doesn't have to be corporate, uh, kind of work where you're manipulating symbols. It's not real things in the sense that like a plumber deals with real things, pipe. Um, it's, it's, it's mentally generated uh, symbols like algebra, where like things represent other things, data, uh, sales data, and how to manipulate them and marketing strategies and things like this. 
And, and then, of course, the credential that you get, which sort of entitles you to apply for and get a job in the what we call today the professional managerial class, the people who run organizations of symbolic analysts. And something about that way of, of working and the education that you, you get to become that is somehow makes you more likely to be a Democrat. That's weird, isn't it? Like, I mean, I don't even know where I'm going with this other than as an observation that isn't it interesting that Republicans in a Trumpian fashion, especially, are people who deal with a recalcitrant material world and know how to do work within it and as you described it, like kind of closer to the ground and more concrete, whereas those who deal with manipulating symbols um, in a kind of virtual, uh, you know, very clearly represented by the internet where there is no physical reality really at all other than the, the hardware that runs all that software online. Like the people who, who run that world at a high level tend to kind of, think the Democrats are the only way to go and that anyone who isn't a Democrat is, is, a, is dangerous and needs to be opposed. I, and I, I haven't thought through exactly why those things might be the case, that each inclines one way politically or the other, but the possibility that it does flow from those different kinds of education because, uh, of course, the contractor is educated. The contractor knows how to do all kinds of stuff. It's just not symbolic analysis. <laughs> it's, right. well, so so it, one, I mean, the, the classic explanation for that is, oh, well, you know, the left controls the universities. They have all the professor spots. And, and so, therefore, if you get through the university, you've been indoctrinated, essentially. And, and it, I think there's some truth to that because, you know, the old pattern we used to see, you know, even in the 60s and 70s when this first emerged, was you know, the classic thing was the the young person comes out of the university all inflamed with left-wing ideals and then they go out in the real world and they get a job and they pay taxes and they have a house and they're sending their kids to school and they go sort of drift over towards the towards the sort of the reagan style right they drift over to the right gradually over over decades with that real world experience whereas i think what we're seeing now though is something different in that you what you had sort of in the reagan era at least maybe in my somewhat idealized version of this is that you still had an intellectualized version of the right. So if you were educated and used to dealing with things in this intellectual way, I and mean, manipulation of symbols sounds a little too behaviorist for me. Uh, actually, frankly, I think what Trump does is manipulation of symbols, right? He, the, every, every word is just, it's a symbol. He throws it around. It, it doesn't stand for anything. It doesn't refer to anything. It doesn't mean anything. It's, it's a symbol he uses to get a reaction out of people. But I mean, you know, the, the idea of, of, of having an intellectualized approach to the world where you have to think in terms, you think of things in terms of concepts and ideas and principles and in terms of large amounts of information that, you know, if, if you talk about a subject, you should be, you know, think about, you know, basically a, a white collar uh, college educated job interview, right? If you're going in for a job interview, you would expect that you would have to show, you know, I know what I'm doing. I have experience. I have um uh, that I, you know, I, I, I have a, I can be consistent about the things that I'm saying. There are certain kind of ways you would talk and ways you would, you would, uh, uh, a, a different, a way of, of thinking that you would have to convey to somebody if you wanted to get that job. Whereas, um, 
I think what's happened is, and there used to be that sort of an intellectualized version of the, and then there still is, but it's it's less dominant, an intellectualized version of the right. If you got out of college and you drifted to the right, there were people you could read who would provide this sort of the intellectualized version of going to the right. Whereas the the difference in the populist right I see is that they don't seem to have any need for you know theoretical justifications, theories of economics, uh, for a a a coherent sort of um, explanatory worldview. Certainly that, that Trump represents the sort of rejection of that. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, and it, it helps perhaps to explain my own skepticism a little bit about the narrative that people come out of college indoctrinated to the left because not that, the, not that universities don't incline to the left. They obviously do. We, we know it from all kinds of statistical information about party affiliation of professors and so forth. But when in my own personal experience in college in the late 80s, early 90s, and then in grad school through the 90s, um, and then just kind of obs having observed the at my ripe old age, kind of the waxing and waning of trends. I just don't think it's convincing that that there's an ongoing indoctrination of young people to be on the left. I mean, under Reagan, I don't think you could describe that as being accurate. Although toward the end of the 80s and early 90s, we had a kind of what the attack on woke stuff, you know, it was called PC then. So political correctness was a big thing in the early 90s. So back then people were saying, yeah, all the kids are coming out as on the left and we should make fun of them, mock them for their pieties and so forth. But then that sort of faded and no one talked about political correctness by the late 90s. And then under Bush in the 2000s after 9-11, that no one thought that way or talked that way, like assumed all college students are just coming out as being left-wingers. But that changed again right around the time of uh, the smartphone of 2012, 2013, which is when we see in all the data the rise of a kind of more militant cultural leftism. Um, and so something changed in the culture then that I think we all perceive, but it's not... That like in 2012, professors finally were like, why are we not indoctrinating these students to the left? We got to work harder at this. And suddenly they started doing it. Um, yeah, my, my only view is I think maybe we're working at the wrong end of the equation, because I what I remember is, um, you know, I, I went off to college right after the publication of Alan Bloom's The Closing of the American Mind. And so I look at today's culture war and I realize it, when in my youth, there was a whole different culture war that was fought and kind of lost. And that was, you know, you had these books that came out like cultural literacy. And it was the the conservative side that was advocating, we need great books education. We need to have more serious education in the universities. And there was an attempt to sort of field a conservative, a field a class of conservative academics. And part, one of the narratives here, but, it, but what actually happened was the opposite, that there were fewer conservative academics. And I'm wondering if you can see that partly as, okay, maybe, the, you know, and there are some people who claim all the conservatives were excluded from academia. But I'm also wondering if the conservatives basically just tried to increase their numbers and increase their representation in academia and weren't able to get a next generation to, to that that would follow up and and sort of carry those ideals forward, if that was a failure on the conservative side of things. 
Well, I, I don't know. I mean, Alan Bloom's book of Closing of the American Mind was also very formative for me. That came out, I started college in 87. That's when the book came out. It was very, uh, you know, reading that book made a huge difference. In fact, it's why I went into political philosophy, because I read that book and I was like, I want to do that. Um, uh, but I didn't sense that. The, I mean, note that the, the argument of closing the American mind is not that all the kids are left wing. It was the kids are relativists. They think they believe nothing. And in fact, they do believe all kinds of things, but they sort of conceal it under a belief in tolerance that leads them to not actually examine what it is they believe. And so we need an education that will do that. That was a much purer version of like basically thinking like our society, our country, our liberal democracy will be healthier if people are raised to be thoughtful citizens. It was it was actually quite naive compared to the present moment in the sense that it wasn't about just creating conservatives. It actually was far more about just creating thoughtful humans. Um and it, it's, you know, maybe it was disappointment that they didn't do that. But I think it's I think it's more that the right has just become more and more militant in being unhappy with how the story is unfolding. Like like they always feel the right feels like it's always losing. And because it's losing, it has to fight harder and with with less thoughtfulness less nuance and and trump is is a, a you know the most recent uh, most extreme expression of of that impulse that somehow like having thoughtful arguments and and uh, an education behind you is like a distraction from what matters which is just winning at any cost and uh, that isn't at all what like an Alan Bloom or even like an E.D. Hirsch, uh, who was, you know, also at that time, you know, very prominent as a kind of semi classical liberal slash conservative in favor of, in, you know, a great books education, right. learning uh, more about the world. Yeah, I used to call it reading Plato to own the libs. <laughs> That's the best way to own the libs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but so maybe this helps explain I just one last issue I want to deal with this. maybe this helps explain one of the things that I, I was hoping you could shed some light on as somebody who came out of the, the you know the, the first things and, and the more religious aspects of the right is that yeah I know that one of the things that's going on that's been going on in the last 30 years has been a collapse in religious belief and, and church attendance and all that thing that basically starting in the 1990s all that sort of goes over a cliff and I think that explains the sort of apocalyptic rhetoric that you get from the religious right that they're seeing, you know, this basically that the that America used to be a majority of the people were committed Christians. They were part of it. They went, they were part of a particular denomination. They went to church on a regular basis. And now all of that's collapsing. And they're sort of seeing that they're seeing that we're going to become like Europe, where you know the majority of people are are secular and religion is sort of faded. And there's almost like a rage against the dying of the light that's going on there. And then maybe that explains some of the odd paradox that you have, you know, these very religious conservatives who have very, in some ways, non-religious and non-believer, you know, uh, practically heathen uh, uh, champions that, that, that they're, that they're lining up behind. Yeah. That is, I mean, I wrote my Donald Trump to me in 1988 
and said, this is the guy that the Jerry Falwell ring of the party is going to be behind, I would I would have not have conceived it. Right. Yeah, that's a complicated story. I mean, my first book after I left First Things was called The Theocons, and it was a critique of uh, the religious right of the kind of middle of the Bush administration. And it was very different than the religious right today. And one major reason why is that, as you described it, the country has become a lot more secular. Now, at first, under Obama, especially the second term of Obama, which almost culminated in the Obergefell decision, constitutionalizing a right to same-sex marriage, um, <clears throat> there was a real despair and panic on the religious right about losing. Like, we're losing this game. Uh, you know, Rod Dreher writes the Benedict Option, which poor Rod came out just after Trump was elected, which meant that it was already kind of passe because, you know, his argument in that book was that the, the country is lost for the religious right. We genuine Christians must kind of withdraw from politics and kind of tend to our own garden in order to be prepared to kind of retake the world after the pending dark ages have come to an end. Um, but that flipped on a dime when Trump actually won. And, and it began, obviously, it was prefigured by a lot of the evangelical right coming to him uh, during the general election. But the general shift has been <laughs> that the religious right has recognized that it can actually have greater success politically if it stops trying to govern the country in the name of its own piety, and instead it, it enjoys a transactional relationship with a secular right, which is really what Trump represents. He might have you know, religious conservatives in his coalition, and he does, and they're an important part of it, a big part. But What's distinct about Trump is that he is the post-religious right. He, he activated voters who were more secular than your typical Republican voter circa 2004. And they are now in charge and they're happy to partner with the religious right in getting power and to do, do favors for the religious right as Trump did. Um, in, in a transactional way. All right, you showed up to vote for me. I'm president. Now I will appoint the judges I told you I would. That's the relationship. And so that's how we are in this weird position now where like the religious right is somehow both far weaker than it ever has been and also much more powerful. And one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, actually is originally what I was going to talk to you about the much more, but we're down towards the end. But it is interesting as a symptom of this is there was a recent, the New York Times recently did a very interesting study where they broke down the different factions within the Republican Party. And one of them was like 8% of it, 8% of the party was these newcomers, they called them, who are people who are not particularly, you know, very heavily pro-Trump, sort of the Vivek Ramaswamy voters. They're, they're not particularly pro, uh, pro, not particularly religious they are uh, don't really have much of a coherent ideology, except and they're kind of isolationist, but mostly seem to be driven purely by negative partisanship. Yes, and especially hatred of all things woke. I mean, these are 
the eight percent of the party, according to this Nate Cohn analysis in the Times, are motivated primarily by hating liberals, hating progressives, hating therefore Democrats, and mostly over woke issues. Um, you know, others have written about these people as like barstool conservatives. That might be some of them. But they're also more racially diverse than most Republican subfactions. Um, and younger. And it's strangely, on my, on my substack, I had someone like this as one of my most frequent and active commenters. And he was constantly fighting with other people in my comments. And he actually was not uh, exactly the, not demographically exactly the way that Times piece portrayed because he was older. He's a guy who loved to say, I've been a Democrat my entire life. I'm retired. I'm a retired school teacher now, and I'll never vote for a Democrat again. I can't stand them. They're far worse than the Republicans. And it's all because of transgender stuff. Like this guy, this guy seriously believes that the biggest threat to the United States is that kids are being taken from their parents and like turned into the other gender with surgery and mutilated. And that this is like totalitarianism. Like that's what this guy cares about. And that is the reason he says he will never vote again for anyone but a Republican. He, he would vote for DeSantis. He would vote for Trump. This is the thing. And on everything else, he says, I'm a lifelong Democrat, but that's all he cares about. Um, that is a new development, and it is something that Democrats need to be very worried about because, um, you know, there are certain demographic trends that are favoring Democrats over the long term. They already win the general election by 3 million in 2016, by 7 million in 2020. Um, so they're they're doing in some ways pretty well, but they have to be concerned if they're losing some black men, a decent number of Hispanics, and and then like this other sub faction of voters who who are just repelled by anything that smacks of what's called wokeness. I prefer to call it social justice progressivism, but whatever, we know what we mean. Um, that you know, eventually that is going to start really hurting uh, in, in uh, how, you know, Democrats do in elections if there's this hemorrhaging of people who become Republicans and they, they don't care about abortion, about tax policy, about regulation, the administrative state, foreign policy. They, you know, they, as you said, this group tends to be a little more isolationist, but that's probably very low down the ranking of important policies. What they care about is the fact that Biden, uh, you know, basically toes the trans activist line when asked about it. And that just makes makes them go kind of really get very agitated and very uh, anti anti-democrat. Um, yeah, I, I think Florida is sort of a warning sign for the Democrats because it's a state that used to be, you know, competitive. It used to be sort of a purple state. It could go either way. Uh, and now you have, you know, not just a Republican majority, but a very aggressive Republican majority that's pushing a, a lot of these things. And and it's a, you know, that I think it's a warning that they can't ignore and say, OK, we're going to dominate in New York and California and not be competitive in, in these other states. Right. No, it's it's a. Uh... 
because of the electoral college, the the uh, electoral math is always extremely complicated, uh, <laughs> and like you can only afford to lose so many big states. Yeah. Uh, you know, you if if the next Democrat wins ninety five percent of the vote in California, great. Maybe you'll you know win nationally the the total general vote by fifteen million, but you'll still potentially lose the electoral college, and that's uh, that's a that's a dangerous precedent. You know, all those every vote above fifty percent plus one in California is technically a wasted vote because yeah. you don't need to win anything more than the majority to get all those electoral votes. So so I guess to, to wrap up, what I want to talk about is that my concern on this, as you know, I said, there used to be a, a strong, and I think there's still underground, there still is an element of liberalism in this broader sense uh, on the right and in the conservative movement and in the, in the Republican Party. But it seems to have sort of lost its friends at court. And so that's sort of the the thing I'm looking at is, you know, liberalism in the broad sense of meaning free society, free markets and free speech. Uh, it, it needs to find sort of a, a coalition in which it has a home and it has a voice. And that's the thing that I'm concerned about, about losing with the current, the current trend, especially on the right. And to some extent, you know, there isn't a liberal wing of the left. Um, what do you see, you know, and with sort of this fusionism coming unfused in that way, I, I see it as an element of danger that, that liberalism loses its part in the coalition, but maybe also opportunity to form new coalitions. What do you think is the way out from that? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I mean, I'm going to sound bleak, but, the, you know, I'm called Damon Downer sometimes. Um, and I, I don't really see any return anytime soon to the old three-legged stool or four-legged if I was right um, uh, the Reaganite synthesis um, I think that that's the past and you know frankly I became a critic of the right under George W. Bush so like in on one level I I think good riddance to some extent I think that you know I I would have voted I was 10 when Reagan was elected but I would have voted for him for much of my adult life when I thought back to the Reagan elections. I mean, when I, I'm actually teaching a course where we're going to watch Reagan's first inaugural address in a couple of weeks. And I, and I listen to that speech and I, I think I don't disagree with anything in that speech. That sounds great. Um, but it was a response to very high interest rates, very high inflation, the stagnation of the late 70s or stagflation of the 70s, Jimmy Carter's sort of hapless governance. Um, and it was needed at the time, uh, you know, the revival of the Cold War as well, as some law and order about crime, like all of that at the moment, I thought was the right message. But as the decades went on, the 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 party was sort of ossified in that a little bit and problems were happening and the party uh, sort of got stuck in that rut and didn't adjust. And I have a lot of respect for, for people like uh, Ryan Salam and Ross Douthat who wrote a book in 2008, uh, Grand New Party, about how um, 
about how Republicans needed to become more populist, but they meant like good populism, like speak to working class voters. They didn't realize that if the party tried to do that, it would be really nasty. Like I, <laughs> I think we've learned the lesson. There is no nice yeah. populism. Yeah, William Crystal was in favor. Uh, the Making America Great Again, I think William Crystal, American greatness conservatism was something William Crystal was promoting. Yeah, yeah. and and David David Brooks as well yeah. um, was big, and David Frum as well. So there were a lot of people like around the time of the end of the Bush administration who were intellectuals who were saying the party has to change and it's it's demographics aren't working its message isn't resonating as much anymore um and the answer ended up being the tea party which then morphed into trump supporters and i don't think you know you and i aren't happy about that shift but i don't really know what I, I honestly don't know what good is going to come out of this trend. As long as education polarization remains as strong as it is, uh, as long as the, that 8% is there and perhaps growing, as Hispanic voters are finding certain, maybe it's the macho swagger of Trump that they like, I don't know. Um, but like, as long as that more aggressive message. I mean, DeSantis winning re-election by 20 points. Clearly there is a large audience of Americans who find something very appealing about this new post-Reaganite right. And um, that means the only way out is through, meaning you don't, there isn't just going to be like a Reaganite who comes along and runs and suddenly does well again. Like we got to go through the ugly populist moment hope it doesn't end in utter disaster <laughs> like the you know like like, uh, like an authoritarian government uh you know getting rid of elections and also not civil violence and uh, you know um you know i i really worry about trump winning next year and there being even bigger protests than 2020 and he comes in and tries to send in the troops as tom cotton advised and uh we end up with uh you know some kind of militaristic uh you know governance in our cities um so you know that all kinds of ugly things could await but it's also possible that all of that is kind of tail end risk and what we'll actually end up with is a kind of like you know as we saw with bolsonaro in brazil like you know Populist gets right. Populist gets elected. Doesn't really go so well. They lose. They leave. They leave power again. And so our politics is more unstable because our right wing is now an anti-liberal right. But in the end, uh, you know, we have to kind of go through that before the uh, the American people, in their wisdom, decide. Eh, you know, this isn't really working for us. Let's adjust further. Um, but I don't think it's quite to that point yet. Yeah, I do try to temper my uh, temper my uh, pessimism on these things by realizing we've been through a lot of really horrible things in the past. You've been through yeah, yeah. Horrible. I mean, and, and, and yeah. still, the late '60s and early '70s were like like orders of magnitude more violent than yes. you know. We had a thousand left wing terrorist bombings in 1970, yeah. 71. I mean, we haven't like that doesn't happen. Um, so 
uh, we have to keep perspective. And, and you know, I, I urge listeners, to, if you don't know that history well, if you're not old enough to have lived through it, you know, read up on the late 60s and early 70s and you'll realize, oh, you know, yeah, 20, you know, January 6th was really terrifying and terrible. But, you know, it, it's not the first time America has had some pretty scary stuff going on. That was unique in its in its uh, scariness. But, um, you know, we 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 have a history of kind of going a little crazy for a while and then we sort of calm down, <laughs> come to our senses. So we have to hope for that. Well, that sounds like a great note to end on. And uh, that is my my grounds for optimism. All right. So thanks so much for talking to me today and uh, for sharing these insights from someone with a somewhat unique perspective on things. Thanks so much for having me. Have me back anytime. I'm Rob Trzynski. My guest today has been Damon Linker, who has a substack called Notes from the Middle Ground. Uh, if you enjoyed this conversation, uh, please like this on YouTube or subscribe to it on your favorite podcasting platform. And for more information about the ideas of the basis of a free society, more discussion, you can always go to symposium.substack.com. Thank you for joining the conversation.